Hi, once again, Gary Zacharias here with the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm working through my second 100 podcast, so I'm going back and picking books out that I'd already talked about a little bit and uh, had focused on one chapter. I want to come back and now pick out the good ones and bring up another chapter. So today I thought I would do James Emery White's book called Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians, subtitle Uncommon Answers to Common Questions. And Lee Strobel says he wishes that book had been around uh, for him when he was an atheist and started asking questions. So I I like uh, White's work. He he puts out a lot of good material. I wanted to do the chapter called Unchristians. He uh, quotes from Gandhi here. I like your Christ. I do not like you Christians. You Christians are so unlike your Christ. Oh, that's painful to hear, isn't it? So he says, uh, let's take a look at the problems that people have on the outside. And they say, well, I've got a problem with you Christians. You do this, you do that, you do other things. So he took on some big ones. He wanted to look at legalism, uh, judgmental attitudes, hypocrisy, intolerant, and sexism. So he's going to tackle the big five. And he said, uh, people don't like those things in Christians. It makes it hard to get to the Christ that they say they follow. It makes it hard to get these new people to become Christians. So he starts with legalism. And pretty simple. He says it's giving people a bunch of do's and don'ts to follow. And the catch is, you're using the name of God, but God didn't say they needed to follow that, whatever it is. So he says it's, it's codes, it's conduct, it's rules, it's regulations contrived by somebody to decide, hmm, you're spiritual if you follow this. You're not so spiritual if you don't follow it. Pretty sad. Said uh, when you do that, it can become binding and brutal, discouraging and defeating. He says it feels like you're about a million miles away from anything authentic, anything that could really change your life, anything that could free you. And so he said, think about what Jesus was doing during the time that he was here, talking about the teachers of the law, and especially the Pharisees. Oh, man. They were religious, weren't they? They were considered to be the holiest people of the day. Uh, The Jews looked up to them. They took the Old Testament and they said, okay, it says honor God or it says uh, don't work on the Sabbath, whatever it is. And they calculated that in the Old Testament there were 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. So they took out the commandments and prohibitions and vowed we have to obey every single one. But then they made rules about the rules and laws about those laws. So in the end, he says they came up with over 1,000 additions. Now, all of that oral tradition got put together and formed something that's known today as the Mishnah. But wouldn't you know it, that wasn't enough. They made more rules around the rules so that they would not break the rules that they made about the scriptures. So there's an outer circle called the Gemara. So together, the Mishnah and the Gemara become known as the Talmud. So how did that work out? He says, well, here are a couple of examples. They wouldn't want to commit adultery. Of course not. But what would the Pharisees do? They would lower their heads whenever they passed a woman so they wouldn't even look at her because that might create lust. So (laughs) unfortunately, they got known as the bleeding Pharisees because they lowered their heads so much they're always running into walls. No, how many steps could you take on the Sabbath? Because you wanted to rest on the Sabbath. So for whatever reason, they came up with some arbitrary number beyond 50 steps. So you could walk 50 steps, but if you went beyond that, that was work. That violated the law. Um, They also decided on holy days that you could eat, 
but you couldn't cook. You could, you could bandage a wounded person, but not apply medicine. Can you imagine that? I mean, just having, to, just having to know all of those laws. If you're a woman, you couldn't look in a mirror. You might see a gray hair. If you saw a gray hair, you might want to pluck it out. And that was work. So what was Jesus' reaction to all of this? Pretty simple. Luke 11. And you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. He says, take a look at that word, woe. He says, um, when judgment was being uttered, a prophet might begin with the word woe. So we know what Jesus felt about legalism. He gave it the ultimate prophetic condemnation. He said, it's killing the heart. It's crippling people's spiritual life. And it's making a mockery of it. Because if it's all about legalism, then you can play the law, kind of like your tax lawyer. you got a loophole here, and you you got a technicality there, and so you can obey the letter of the law, but not its spirit. And that's what Jesus was after. Following him is not about what you do, but who you are. If you're tired of legalism, White says, this doesn't mean you're turned off to Christianity, much less Jesus. You're turned off to its counterfeit, and that's a good thing. All right, he takes on a second issue that people have been turned off by among Christians. That's judgmentalism. And White agrees. He said, if you've encountered this spirit in church, you have every right to be repulsed by it, especially coming from a follower of Jesus. Jesus went out of his way to tell people who followed him, whatever you do, don't judge people. And in Matthew 7, he says, don't judge others. You won't be judged, for you'll be treated as you treat others. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? So Jesus said, don't judge, period. That's God's job, not ours. Real judgmentalism is about the practice of personal condemnation. So these are fault finders that Jesus is talking about, people who are negative and destructive toward others. So remember, if you encounter judgmentalism on the outside as you're looking at Christians, it's not reflective of Jesus or the life that he calls us to live. Christians are a bunch of moral foul-ups. We all are. But through the power of Christ, there's hope for all of us. So we, we want to find out what our problems are and become more changed people. It's messy, he says, but it's beautiful. Third area that he tackles, hypocrisy. He said, hypocrisy doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, and Jesus was hostile to it. He's the one who started the war. He says, have you ever seen those masks that they use for comedy and tragedy for ancient Greek? They had all kinds of masks. Uh, actors would wear them, but it represented their character. And they were known in the Greek word for one of those actors was hypocrite. So the art of the actor was that when he put the mask on, his whole conduct would reflect that role. That's what an actor is supposed to do. Jesus applied it to people who are spiritual actors. In Matthew 23, he said, hypocrites. You're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. He says you pretend to be holy with all your long public prayers in the streets while you're evicting widows from their homes. Hypocrites. So if you think about hypocrisy, that's not the authentic Christian faith. Jesus was on board with despising it. But I like what White gets to next. He said, let's be clear about what hypocrisy isn't. It's not when somebody falls below your expectation of perfection. It's not catching somebody who says they follow Jesus committing a sin. Uh, everybody be on that list. Says, so do you think a Christian means perfection? No, no. He says the idea runs rampant. 
even among Christians. Uh, so here's the thinking behind the statement. If you're being a Christ follower, follower, do you have to be perfect? Absolutely not. The opposite of hypocrisy is spiritual authenticity. I fail all the time, he says. But the real question is whether I'm more like Jesus now than I was five years ago. So, good point here. An authentic Christian life is not marked by perfection. It's transformation. So I like that one a lot. All right, here's another issue that non-Christians will uh, point their fingers at Christians for. Okay, you know, so he says, you're, you're a non-Christian. You say, I get the legalism, the judgmentalism, the hypocrisy. That It's good to hear what you have to say about it. But what about basic things like acceptance and tolerance? And, of course, you know where he's going with this. He says, people will ask him, are you accepting of gays? He says, my answer has always been, of course. Why wouldn't we be? Christians have been, unfortunately, unloving and ungracious and even hateful toward the members of the LGBTQ community. But that lack of love is sin. God cares about every single person on this planet, period. If you want to make acceptance, here comes the tricky part. If you want to make acceptance also mean affirmation, he says that's a separate conversation we're happy to have, but it's a separate conversation. And he points out acceptance and affirmation are two different things. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Accepting somebody and hanging out with them and sharing meals with them, yeah, that's one thing, but affirming, saying good for you, that's different. And he talks about tolerance. He says there are three kinds of tolerance. First is legal tolerance. So those would be your, like your basic First Amendment rights in this country. There's nothing anywhere in the Bible that teaches that's a bad idea. The Bible's a great advocate for legal tolerance. Then there's a second kind of tolerance called social tolerance. That's accepting a human being, regardless of what they believe, interacting with them in love and having a, a relational openness to them as a fellow human being. Again, the Bible is not against that at all. Jesus reached out to the low-placed people, didn't he? Prostitutes and scoundrels and thieves. In fact, he was known as a friend of sinners. Yeah, it was a, it was a put-down. They didn't like that. Well, the third kind of tolerance is intellectual tolerance. That's accepting any and every idea as being equally valid or good or right and true. And this, he says, is where Christianity draws the line. He says, you know, we all do. We all draw the line. Intellectual tolerance will take things so far and no more. He says, I don't believe everything is equally right or equally valued, equally valid. He says, isn't that where we all are? Do we all believe in intellectual tolerance that all the ideas are equally valid and should be treated as such? No, no. If somebody says, hey, the best way for you to have great online experience is get rid of your antivirus protection. Oh, and then open up every email attachment Download all the free software you can. Oh, and definitely respond to that email from that lawyer about that distant cousin of yours you didn't know existed from Nigeria. You just need your bank account and social security number to give you your million-dollar inheritance. Well, you can be tolerant of that person legally and relationally, but you're going to reject what he says to you about how to handle yourself online. So he says, take out lifestyles, for example. Are we to affirm every lifestyle is equally good and safe and fulfilling and holy as any other? He says, can't you think of at least one lifestyle practice that you personally would reject, not just for you, but for everyone? Sure, Christians do too. He says, Christianity walks a fine line, but it's an important line. 
on any number of lifestyle issues in light of the legal, relational, intellectual tolerance. What about sexism? Christians get accused of being sexist. So he tackles that one. He says sexism is the economic exploitation and or social domination of members of one sex by another. And he says it's so unfortunate. The perception is that the Christian faith is deeply sexist. Is that true? He says there's no place in God's economy for sexual harassment, assault, or rape. Paul says to Timothy, treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. But then up comes the question that White tackles next. But what of women being seen as inferior to men? Well, is that part of the Christian faith? He says, no. I mean, take a look at the opening chapters of the Bible with Adam and Eve. People were made male and female, and they're both given a mutual charge to steward the earth. And then when Jesus lived, sexism was rampant. It was just terrible. The men ran everything, but Jesus didn't treat women badly. He invited them to follow him, part of his church. He treated them with respect, with honor, with sensitivity. He talked to the Samaritan woman, and that was the first person he revealed to be the Messiah. He says um, Mary was the first one that saw him after his resurrection. He gave her the opportunity to go tell the male followers. That was a cultural bombshell. So the one person Jesus told to go tell all the men was a woman. Women were low on the social totem pole. And so over and over again, we find Jesus treating women with great respect. And he says from the first moments of the early Christian church, this unheard better treatment of women took root right away. Women were involved. They were treated as equals. They may have had different roles, different responsibilities, but they're equal footing before God. In the New Testament, they're speaking in the church. They're teaching in the church. They help provide leadership. You have church groups meeting in their homes. You have names like Phoebe and Priscilla and Mary and Martha. They're just as prominent as any man's. So he says at the end of the chapter, Let's close this conversation with what I hope is now clear. Judgmentalism, legalism, hypocrisy, intolerance, and sexism are not part of the Christian world. At least not the world that Jesus came to establish. They're part of the sin-stained, sin-soaked nature of all of humanity. So, yeah, he's not claiming that we don't do those things. He's just saying that's not what Jesus wanted, and we fall so far short. It's really sad. He says these are the things that Christian faith seeks to eradicate. And uh, so I agree with that. Anyway, so here was a second chapter that I wanted you to take a look at from James Emery White, Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians. And I hope you get a lot out of it. And we'll do another podcast soon. Thanks.